Mark 15. I'll just read through the first five verses and then we'll pray and stop. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, Lord, we would, uh, we would be able to study your word tonight, Lord, hear from your spirit, and, Lord, be transformed by your word. Lord, enable me to, to teach your truth, and, Lord, may you work and have your way amongst us all this evening, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, chapter 15, at last. Jesus is delivered over to Pilate. So, first things first, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elder scribes and the whole council. What happens here in the first half of verse 1 is really a wrapping up of what we saw in the previous chapter before the denials of Peter. Uh, remember, we looked through the um, trial that Jesus had, or so-called trial that he had with the, um, the Sanhedrin. And we saw that in total, in Mark's gospel, he broke, they, they broke rather a total of 18 different Jewish laws. In fact, if you incorporate the other three gospels, you can take that total, as I said, up to 22. But they broke multiple laws in their meeting and how they met and how they did it and what have you as we went through then. And one of the, or two of the laws they broke um, were to do with the time of day. One of the laws was there should be no criminal proceedings after sunset. And another one is that a verdict had to be delivered during the day. There was also supposed to be gaps in between, not that those gaps are met here, but there was no gap at all between the trial and the sentencing, uh, and the verdict rather, and the sentencing. Um, so it seems as if here they regather once it is light, or once the morning comes about, once, once dawn uh, arrives, so that there would be at least a semblance of legality. Oh, well, I guess that doesn't really count, so let's kind of get together again. And so they meet together uh, to um, try and formalize, I think, somewhat more what had occurred in the uh, early hours of the morning during the night. We're not told the details here in Mark, um, nor in Matthew or John, but Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 66 to 71, um, does deal with that in a little bit more detail. But Mark, suffice to say, just tells us that they did that, and that ends with them um, binding Jesus. They bound Jesus, and they led him away, 
and delivered him over to Pilate. Now this is a key expression and um, I want to take a little bit of time over that. Before we do so, let's just deal with the historical background of Pilate and uh, get that out of the way. Pilate, um, he is um, the procurator, uh, although some say maybe that wasn't an official term in those days, but he was in charge of Israel. He uh, ruled on behalf of Rome over Israel. He was Spanish by birth, born in Spain, um, but he was a Roman citizen and he had this role for 10 or 11 years, 26 to 36 AD. He was a cruel man. He was renowned for his assaults, his abusive behavior, just to all and sundry. He had a checkered history, shall we say, in his dealing with the Jews. Um, they did not endear themselves to him. He um, brought the uh, standard bearers down from Caesarea, where he ruled, to Jerusalem that had the image of the emperor on the standards. And of course, the Jews don't like the image of God, and the Romans saw uh, Caesar as a god of sorts, and so they weren't happy about that image being upon the standards, that they had one God, Yahweh alone. And so they all marched up to Caesarea and caused a fuss, and uh, he initially stood his ground against them, but once he realized that they were all actually prepared to die rather than back down, he eventually reneged and called them back. So that did not endear him to the Jewish people. They were not the ones who would do what they were told. At a later time, he was um, wanting to build an aqueduct for water into Jerusalem, and uh, because of this negative history with the Jews, he just thought he'd finance it by taking money out of the temple. And as you could imagine, that didn't go down very well with the Jewish people. So there was a uh, protest and a crowd forming, and uh, he instructed his soldiers to go in and mingle in the crowd, but in plain clothes without their obvious uniform. And they were instructed to beat people in the crowd with the flat end of their sword. So rather than using the sword to cut them, just to kind of hit them with it. But nevertheless, many people died and, uh, and his contempt for the Jews and their contempt from him certainly uh, didn't de decrease in any way at that time. Ultimately, he took it a step too far. Um, there was a group of Samaritans who were heading to Mount Gerizim, which was their holy mountain. They were hoping to find vessels that Moses had from the tabernacle up there. So they headed up in a group to uh, Gerizim, but they went up armed, and the Romans didn't like the look of that. And it basically led to a confrontation that resulted in the massacre of all the Samaritans. And this was one step too far, and uh, Pilate was at that point recalled to Rome and relieved of his duties. So he was not a fan of the Jews, and the Jews weren't a fan of him, and he wasn't a particularly nice chap. But, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, the enemies become friends because they have a common enemy. And so, uh, and so it is that here, now, they have a use for Pilate, and they need to make sure that Pilate has a use for doing what they want. And so he is bound, Jesus, and handed over to this cruel man, in the hopes, from the Jewish perspective, that they will, uh, that he rather, Pilate, will do what they couldn't, which is put Jesus to death. 
Now to this phrase, handing over. This is one of those phrases that gets uh, camouflaged in the English language of our Bible. It's one of Mark's uh, favorite words. He uses it routinely, and he uses it for a specific purpose as a thread running through the gospel and through his story. He first uses it in conjunction to John the Baptist, who is handed over when he is put into prison. Part of the problem here is that we have this word, which can be translated various ways, and handed over is how it is here in, uh, in my text before me, or delivered rather, delivered, handed over, and the other one is betrayed. Sometimes it's just simply translated betrayed. But um, it literally means to, to give over. So I'm going to use the phrase handed over. But here in verse 1 where it says they led him away and delivered him, that delivered is the phrase handing over. So John the Baptist was handed over and put into prison. And so as happens with the herald, so happens with the king. And Jesus predicted multiple times. In chapter 3, um, chapter 14, in verses 10, 11, 18, 21, 42, 44, he predicts again and again and again that he will be betrayed, handed over by the betrayer, by Judas. Specifically, what is interesting, we might just turn there briefly, but in chapter 9 and verse 31, when he has these predictions he makes concerning his, um, his death and resurrection, he tells them in 9.31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. So he has specifically used this term, term to predict he's going to be delivered, he's going to be handed over into where? Into the hands of sinful men. That's something that was repeated again um, in verse uh, 41 of chapter 14, which we saw just a few weeks ago, that at the end of Gethsemane, he essentially quotes his own prophecy when he says, the Son of Man is betrayed... Same word in the Greek, betrayed, delivered, handed over, into the hands of sinners, rise, let us be going, see, my betrayer is at hand. And so, again, it is, it is prophesied. Then in chapter 10 and verse 33, chapter 10 and verse 33, the third foretelling of his death, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered. Again, handed over. Now, specifically, he'll be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over. Notice there's two delivers here. Deliver him over to the Gentiles. So when, here in chapter 15... Mark again uses the expression handed over. He is continuing this story, this thread, where Jesus has prophesied and predicted multiple times that he's going to be handed over. He's going to be handed over by the hander over, betrayed by the betrayer, delivered by the deliverer in a negative sense. Judas is going to do that, but he's going to be handed over to sinful men, and those sinful men will hand him over to the Gentiles. And the sinful men... I imagine include the chief priests, the scribes, but also the Romans as well. Those who are all involved in the death of Christ 
and he is being handed over to them all. What is interesting to me is that after we have that last statement in chapter 10 and verse 33 that we read of him being handed over, that last prophecy, you know, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he'll rise. In the next section, remember saying this at the time, it's just kind of ludicrous. Here he is saying, look, I'm going to go to my death, I'm going to go to my death. And in the very next section, James and John are saying, hey, can we have a place in your kingdom? You know, where are we going to be? And he's like, you can't drink from this cup. You can't do this. And it ends, that whole section ends in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to ser be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that's an interesting parallel that Mark has his little sections. And he finishes his section with a third prophecy saying that Christ is going to be handed over. He's handed over. He's handed over. And in, the, in, in that third crucial climactic prophecy of his death, he specifically says the Son of Man is going to give his life. And I like that we have that, that here Mark has this thread going through where he's talking about Jesus saying, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be handed over. And then from the, uh, chapter 14, verse 42 and on, he is handed over. And now here he is handed over. And in verse 10, he is going to be handed over again um, by the chief priests. And again, in verse 15, he's handed over to the soldiers for them to crucify him. But in the midst of it all, Jesus is the one who gives his life. And that is the, the paradox, if you like, that we have to embrace throughout this account. That there are those who are working against Jesus. They're delivering him over. But Jesus, in prophesying this, is showing that he is in control. This is part of the plan. You want me to set up the kingdom. You want me to be king. You want me to rule and reign. You want to, to me to get rid of the Romans. You want this. But there's a plan, and the plan is for me to be delivered over. The plan is for me to be delivered over. And you know, I'm not sure if you counted, but I made that a total of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine references to him being handed over in prophecy. And then the words used a total of four times in fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is making a very clear point to them here, which is this, that he is in control. Don't panic, I'm in control. He gives his life as a ransom for many. And so it's interesting to me that here we're seeing the fulfillment of those prophecies that Mark has been threading into the narrative for us and the handing over now to Pilate is exactly what was prophesied that the chief priests would do. They would deliver him over to Pilate. So, um, Pilate then confronts him and uh, he's, he's at it and ready. Uh, interesting that Pilate is up ready and early in the morning to do it. So as soon as it's morning, there they are, and they're doing so. And I think that the reason is, is that, of course, Pilate the previous night had released a cohort to go and arrest Jesus, uh, along with, with Judas. And uh, 
and therefore he knew this was coming and he was ready for this. It's interesting, by the way, talking of laws that were broken in trials, the, um, the trial with, for Jesus is, uh, from the Roman perspective, there's only really two key laws that apply here. One is that it must be public, and as we're going to see next week, it is very public the way it's, it's done. And so Pilate does do that. The second thing is that the accuser has to present formal charges for a crime that's punishable by Roman law. So um, there needs to be accusers. And what's interesting from, in Mark's gospel is Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? He answered, you have said so. We'll come back to that. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So the accusers here are the chief priests. Notice that the accuser that got the cohort out, the accuser that they required, was actually Judas. Judas isn't here now. Matthew's account, we know why. It's because Judas has killed himself at this point. But, but uh, in Mark's gospel, the chief priests are the ones who are presented as the accusers. He's very much um, placing this large degree of blame upon them. They're the ones who are causing this Roman trial to happen. They're the ones who, in this account, are bringing the accusations against Christ. And so from Pilate's perspective, we'll see in a moment that the, the chief priests accuse him of many things. But really from Pilate's perspective, there's one issue here. Are you the king of the Jews? You see, in the previous trial, in the religious trial, so-called, when he comes before the Sanhedrin, they're there and they're interested in messiahship. They're interested in religious things. It's when Jesus says that you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. With that allusion to Daniel 7, that they, you know, there's the ripping of the garments. He's blaspheming. This can't be right that he would do such a thing and say such a thing. And that's what really offended them and that's what really angered them. But Pilate doesn't care. Jesus, you can talk about coming in the clouds all you like. I'm not interested in your religious stuff. I'm not interested in charges of blasphemy. So what they've done in bringing accusation to Jesus, and we've hinted at this previous to this point, what they're doing in bringing the charges against Jesus here now is they're saying, this one is the king of the Jews. He is a threat to Caesar. And really that's the issue. Remember, throughout this gospel, Jesus doesn't ever call himself the king of the Jews. He doesn't refer to himself as son of God, a messianic term. He constantly refers to himself as son of man. Son of man. And it's a religious term that, that avoids the political ideology. The king of the Jews and the accusation of being king of the Jews is a political charge. It's not a religious one. It's a political charge. Pilate isn't concerned about Jesus taking over the rule of Jew the Jewish religion in Jerusalem, if that were to happen. He's not, he doesn't bothered about that. He doesn't care. High priest, Messiah, I'm not fussed. What he's bothered about is if someone's going to rise up and say we've had enough of Rome. If someone's going to rise up against Caesar. Look, you have your Sanhedrin, you keep your rules, you do your stuff. But what Caesar says goes, and you do that. 
That's why, ultimately, they have to go before Pilate. Because they're not able to do what they want to do anymore, which is kill him. And if they did kill him, by the way, it would be through stoning predominantly, which is not how it was prophesied and therefore wouldn't have been sufficient. It has to come this way. And they can't kill him because Rome doesn't allow them to do so. Rome is in charge. Caesar's in charge. So when Pilate says to him, are you king of the Jews? He's not saying, are you the Messiah? He's not saying, do you see yourself as being their future king at some point in the future? Do you see yourself as having the kingdom of God, which is like a mustard seed and, you know, parables that Jesus has spoken? He's not interested in that kind of thing. He's interested in, are you a threat to Rome? And when we understand that, that then explains Jesus' response. Jesus says, you have said so. That's a very enigmatic response as far as we're concerned. But what Jesus is saying in that response is he's simply saying, yes and no. He says, well, you say so. So what he's saying is, what you think king of the Jews is, I'm not. You know, one of the really annoying things in life is when someone's trying to say to you, Look, answer me this question, yes or no. And you can't say yes, and you can't say no, because neither answer is an appropriate response and communicates what you actually think. Sometimes yes and no can be an entrapment. Just say yes or no. It can't be that way. If Jesus says, well, he can't say no, I'm not the king of the Jews, because he is. I mean, he is the Jewish king. He's the king in the line of David. He's the Davidic king who will have a kingdom that will never come to an end. And yes, ultimately, it will destroy the Roman kingdom. There will be no Rome. There will simply be the kingdom of God that expands the whole earth. And yes, this is the king. So he can't say, no, he's not the king of the Jews. But he can't say, yes, he's the king of the Jews. Otherwise, Pilate's going to completely misunderstand him. He's going to think Jesus is saying, well, yep, I'm the king, and we're going to take you out, and we're, you know, we're going to overpower you, and we've had enough of Caesar. And that's not the case either. So it's not simply a yes or no response from Jesus' perspective, which is why he says, you have said so. It simply means, not the way that you've put it. I'm not thinking along the lines that you are. I don't understand this title the same way that you understand this title. And so, um, it is then that the chief priests uh, come in and they accuse him of many things. The many things here aren't delineated to us because they're not really relevant. It's not going to be the many things that they were concerned about. It's not going to be how do you do these miracles? Why do you teach these people? Why, you, why have you predicted the end of a temple? It's not going to be why did you blaspheme? Why do you see yourself coming on the clouds? Do you really think you're the Messiah? None of the things that interest them the accusations are accusations before the Roman trial. So they're basically things that might imply that he is going to be some usurper of Rome's authority. The specifics really don't matter. It's simply uh, they are piling in to try and say, look, Pilate, you really do need to worry about this guy. You need to be concerned about him. He is going to be a problem to you. They're trying to make their problem his problem. They can have a problem. They can have problems as much as they like, as big as they like. Pilate doesn't care. 
Pilate only cares if he has a problem. And right now, he's left his home in Caesarea, he's come to Jerusalem, where there are hundreds of thousands of people who have descended upon Jerusalem for Passover. There's so many of them that they're having to temporarily extend, as we talked about, the city walls of Jerusalem to, so that people can be considered within the city, even though they're physically not, because there's so many people there. And he is concerned about there being uprising on Passover when the city is full of Jewish people who care about religious things. And here is this religious figure that he's being warned could somehow cause these people to rise up against Rome. That's what Pilate's worried about. And that is what the chief priests are trying to convince him is the case. So Pilate again comes back to Jesus and says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Well, there's all sorts of uh, prophecies being in, in, enacted here. Jesus is being silent as he's accused. Essentially, he's given his answer. His answer was, I'm not the king of the Jews that you think the king of the Jews is. That's essentially his answer. So they bring all these accusations to him, and he's, uh, it's, like he's, it's like in his silence he's saying, I've got nothing to add. I'm not. I've said what I've said. I'm not. Not the way that you think. Not, not at all. And, and so he just leaves it. And Pilate is obviously used to people vociferously arguing the innocent, trying to, you know, it's as if Pilate is saying, don't you understand the power that I have? You, you don't seem bothered at this point. Do you see now why I just took the time to point out the handing over and the history in Mark of handing over, of delivering? Because this is, this is what's been building up to. He's going to be delivered. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be delivered. He's going to be handed over. It's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to give his life as a ransom for many. So Pilate's like, well, I have power. This guy isn't defending himself. And Jesus is, he's responded. He has nothing else to add. He's not trying to avoid the circumstances. He's entrusting himself to God in the midst of those circumstances. And God will do with Christ as was always predicted. And so it is that Pilate is amazed. And that's another word that I've mentioned in sermons in the past that as we've gone through Mark's Gospel, we've seen it again and again. Right back in chapter 1, it began, and he was teaching, and his teaching amazed people. And uh, they, weren't, um, they weren't expecting it. Chapter 1, verse 21, he went to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he's entered the synagogue, and he's teaching, and they were astonished, amazed at his teaching. He taught them as one who had authority. And as we go through, his casting out of demons brings amazement. His healing brings amazement. Jesus creates amazement. He is not what was expected. People are surprised by him. The expectation they had of their Messiah, he does not fulfill. And now, even in the hands of a Gentile ruler, what Jesus does does not meet his expectations. And he is amazed by Jesus. There's a possibility as well here that there's something bigger being nudged or being nudged towards. If you want to just turn briefly to Isaiah 52, 53. 
There's no doubt that Mark has relied heavily in his uh, gospel on Isaiah, though he's writing to uh, predominantly Roman Gentiles. Uh, we again and again, we've seen him using the book of Isaiah to, um, to give depth and background to his story. When this passage of the suffering servant begins in chapter 52 and verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. And then it says, As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. Now, the entirety of this is clearly not seen here, but I do find it very interesting here that we have the word astonished, amazed, being used here, and in the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew, it's the same word, in the context of Gentile kings. And here he is before a Gentile ruler, and we're specifically told, that he is astonished. If you read a little bit further on, in chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And we see the silence of Jesus again being fulfilled. So it's as if Mark is pointing us back here to this suffering servant passage. As we hit chapter 15 now, we're coming to the crucifixion of Christ. And Mark, it's no surprise, is it? Mark, who has been pointing us to Isaiah in his earlier stories again and again, and we've made reference to them multiple times, that really the, the climax for, um, for Isaiah with the story of his... Um, no, I mean, that's probably not right, not the climax, because he continues on to the ultimate kingdom. But what the, the, one of the key moments for Isaiah as he progresses with the, the story of the Messiah, the king, the root, the, the stump, the suffering uh, servant, the righteous one, as he progresses with that, uh, that story, that, that theme through his prophecy, he comes to this point, and Mark, who's relied on Isaiah, he's building up to this same point as well. And so it seems to me um, likely that Mark is pointing here through Isaiah. He's saying, as we come now to the cross, he's saying, you remember the suffering servant? People were astonished. Many were astonished. Gentiles, Gentile kings were astonished. The one who was oppressed and afflicted and yet remained silent. This is the one whose suffering is spoken of in Isaiah 53. Just the previous verse from verse 7, verse 6. All we like sheep have turned astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's just end tonight. I think um, I didn't, I thought it I think I was right in thinking if I tried to do the rest of the section with Pilate, we'd have gone on way too long. So, so we won't go any further than verse 5 tonight. But let's just end. If Mark is trying to get us to put our focus on Isaiah 52 and 53, if he's trying to get us to see that his I Isaianic 
if that's how you say it, references throughout this book. You know, Mark has continually through this book pointed to Isaiah because Isaiah was hinting that there was an exodus in the past and there'll be an exodus in the future. There will be this, this future salvation, this future time when the Jewish people would have a second exodus. Just as there was a Passover of old, now at Passover is the time for the second exodus. And it seems that he is pointing us here to Isaiah 52 and 53. And if he is pointing us here, then why don't we cast our eyes upon it? So I'll end tonight just by reading the entirety of this passage. Because it's so good. And it is where we are heading in Mark's Gospel. This and remember as we read this, this was written approximately 600 years. Yeah, I think 600. should have written that down. Maybe 700, but I think it's 600 years before the time of Christ. I've heard many times that people in Jewish evangelism have quoted these verses to Jews to try and say to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And they say in response, don't go quoting your New Testament to me. No, no, no. This is Isaiah. Anybody can see that this is speaking of Christ. So let's, I'm going to read it through from chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should des desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that just marvellous? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing passage of scripture. And as we come now in these evening studies ahead to the crucifixion, the cross, the suffering, the death, the sacrifice for our sins, Lord, may our hearts and our minds be upon what has been done. May our familiarity with the cross never take away from its brutality and from its accomplishments. And may we be astonished and may our astonishment never cease. Amen. Amen.